0: Good morning. Just before we plunge in, let me make a quick announcement to all the men in the room. This Friday and Saturday, we have a real privilege and an opportunity with Ray Ortland in town. Ray has written many books and has been uh, speaking and preaching for decades. He's in his 70s, and his most recent book is a book called The Death of Porn. Ray uh, tells a story near the beginning of the book that late in his life John Wesley wrote a letter to William Wilberforce and he said slavery is a blight on humanity and you can do away with it in your lifetime and William Wilberforce kept Wesley's letter folded up and with him for decades motivating him as he fought an uphill battle helping put an end to the modern slave trade as we knew it and uh, Ray Ortland has said this is my letter I'm in my 70s and I'm writing a letter to the next generation and I want you to fold it up and carry it with you. He says, pornography is a blight on humanity. And I don't want to just convince young Christian men to stop looking at it, though I do want that. He says, but what I'm laboring to do is raise up a million men that would stack hands together from across the globe and say, let's, let's put a stake in its heart in our lifetime. Not allow it to continue to seek out and to rob our children of their joy and their freedom. And so I think it's gonna be a powerful evening wherever you find yourself as it relates to this temptation, this issue, men, what's gonna happen here on Friday night and Saturday morning, I think it's gonna be really powerful. And I'd love for you to join me here with Ray. So with that being said, allow me to pray for us and we will plunge into this text today. Father, we need you. And we thank you that you're available. And so right now I'm asking that you would come and meet with us, that where people are in bondage, that you would set them free. Where we have a small and a broken view of our identity and our sexuality and the fullness of our satisfaction. I pray that you, by way of the scriptures, by way of your spirit, you would speak truth to us. You would challenge us. So we look forward to what you have in store for us, Jesus. Uh, You are welcomed in this place. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been with us, you know that we've been working through a series called Skeptics Welcome, engaging the hard questions, questions that are posed to the church and to us as Christians, those of us in the room who are Christians. These are the sorts of questions that you're wrestling with, and we've said these are worth us taking some time and wrestling with one because to the skeptics in the room, you are You are very important guests. You're guests of honor. We're so glad you're here. We welcome you. Um, We take your questions seriously, and we think that as we bring them to Jesus and wrestle with them, there are satisfying answers to be had. And to those of you in the room who are Christians, we want you to continue to feel equipped and encouraged to not shy away from the tough questions, but to know that with the Scriptures and by Jesus' lead, you can wade into these waters and do so with confidence. And so we've been walking through the series this morning. We're asking and laboring to answer the question: Is Christianity sexually repressive? We live in a cultural moment, a unique spot in history and on the globe, where where sexual freedom and fi- fulfillment has become central to a cultural identity. culture has begun to define for us identity and love and romance and fulfillment and satisfaction. All these words have solely been defined in a way that is tightly wound around human sexuality. And when these things are the case, it is easy for a book like the Bible and a person like Jesus who has designs on our identity and sexuality and satisfaction. It is, it's is—it's the temptation or it's the possibility to think that any of those teachings are then oppressive or undercutting our sense of who we are. And so as a church, we need to wrestle honestly with this question. Is, is Christianity sexually repressive? Is Jesus An enemy seeking to repress people or a liberator seeking to deliver them freedom in every area, including the area of our sexuality. And this morning, my overarching idea, my my statement that I long to find, find a place in our hearts and our minds is this. Jesus is more committed to your true satisfaction than anyone ever. I hope that you hear as we wrestle with the issues of human sexuality, as we explore the text of John 4 together, that what you see in your mind's eye is Jesus bubbling over with joy, with a bright and full smile saying, come to me. I am more committed to your satisfaction than anyone ever. But in so doing in exploring that we're going to have to deal honestly with the facts that he's also going to challenge the narrative that we are saturated in as a culture in order to deliver that sort of satisfaction so together we are going to go on that journey the first thing if we're going to understand this reality that jesus is more committed to our satisfaction than anyone we first have to realize that we're all longing for satisfaction we're all thirsty everyone is thirsty And the text that we're studying, it it unfolds against this pervasive and this present backdrop of thirst. Did you hear it as it was read for us? You know, it's this story, the woman at the well. It may be familiar to some of you that Jesus meets this Samaritan woman out at the well at the noon hour. It's hot. They're out in the desert. They're sweating as she's laboring to draw water from a well that is 100 feet deep. The text says that Jesus was sitting there wearied, He's tired and he looks at her and he says, will you give me a drink? He expresses his thirst and then she begins to speak and they talk back and forth and they have a discussion about thirst and how it's satisfied. And by the conclusion, what we realize is this, that in this hot, sweaty moment as they're laboring for physical water, that they're having a discussion about thirst and by the conclusion, we realize that this this conversation about thirst is happening on multiple levels. Did you hear it by the time we got to verses 15 through 20? Hear the different layers of thirst and the way that this serves as a backdrop to Jesus's interaction with this woman. In verse 15, it says, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water, the living water that Jesus is speaking about, so that I won't be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So this is the physical level. She's just thinking about water. And quite frankly, it's understandable in her context and culture Figuring out how we're gonna find water day to day is a life and death issue. This is a big deal. Life revolves around the trips out to the well and getting enough water for our household to make it through the day. So she's thinking on that level because it's very present, it's very pressing. And she goes, yeah, that would be great to have that water so I don't have to come out here and draw out of the 100 foot deep well every time. She's thinking on that level. Jesus very quickly takes her down a level. He puts his finger on something and says, let's talk about the real nature of your thirst. Because he says this, well, go call your husband and come here. And the woman says, I have no husband. Jesus says, you're right in saying I have no husband for you've had five husbands and the one that you are now with is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Do you see how Jesus put his finger on a deeper thirst that, re- that reveals a deeper thirst even still? She's thinking about water. He says, well, let's talk about your sexuality and your relationships. Go get your husband and let's talk about the nature of thirst and the nature of the satisfaction of thirst. And very quickly, he reveals this, this reality that she has a a pretty spotted past, especially culturally speaking, a woman that's been married five times and is currently living with a man that is not her husband. This, is, this has been a very sexualized journey for this woman. And Jesus puts his finger on the nature of relationship and intimacy and sexuality and says, yes, let's talk about thirst. And as soon as they go below the level of just the physical and they're talking relational, she immediately goes one step deeper. Did you hear it? And she says, I can see you're a prophet. We wrestle about where we're supposed to worship and how we're supposed to worship. Is it supposed to be Jerusalem or is it supposed to be here? And she starts to address an even deeper level of thirst saying, what's the nature of proper worship? And what you realize is the backdrop of Jesus's interaction with the woman at the well is pervasively and truly thirst. Thirst at a physical level, thirst at a relational level, thirst at a worship level. This is the setting for their interaction. And ultimately what we have to realize is this that we are all a thirsty people seeking satisfaction, longing for satisfaction in physical and in sexual relational and in spiritual ways. We are a people that come out of the womb hungry, thirsty with with desires, longing for satisfaction. And the truth is, whatever it is that you're most longing for, what Jesus is saying is, if, if you're longing for something in this world, rest assured that nothing in this world is going to be able to satisfy it. If you long for riches, no amount of money will ever satisfy you. If you long for reputation, no amount of adulation will ever satisfy you. And as he's putting his finger on this text, as he's interacting with this woman, he's saying, and if sexual desire and fulfillment and finding your identity in another person and the, the interaction that you have together. If this is your deep longing, nothing in this world, no amount of relationships, no amount of pleasure is ever going to be able to satisfy you. You see, we are a bundle of desires. And the question is, how are we going to handle or steward these longings? One of the, the mistakes that is commonly made and has been made for a long time is to treat desires like they're only interacting with that top layer. This is what we experience in the scriptures in in Corinth. The church in Corinth was experiencing pervasive sexual brokenness. It was a confused city. And the letter is addressing all sorts of very prevalent sexual issues that they were facing. And you get to the root of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when verse 13, it says that they have this common phrase in Corinth, the stomach is for food and the food is for stomach, is for the stomach. And what they're saying is, in essence, our desires just skim the surface of the physical. It's as if to say, I'm hungry, so I eat a burger. I have sexual desires, so I have sex. It's just physical. That's all there is to it. And Jesus in this text is pointing to something. He's saying, yes, we're all thirsty, but our thirst participates in other deeper, truer layers than just the physical. And we know this to be true, do we not? If we're honest, we know this to be true, particularly in the places where our sexuality is mishandled, where it's transgressed. Sam in a in a phenomenal book called Why Does God Care Who I Sleep With? A very short, succinct, excellent work that I would commend to all of you. He says this, when someone is wronged sexually, it's more than just a couple of parts of their body that are affected, one thing is very clear the whole person is impacted. The damage is not just physical, it's emotional, it's psychological. The wounds can last a lifetime and they manifest themselves in a thousand different places because sex is not just about parts of our biology. If the walls of my office could speak, they would confirm this truth, the truth that unfortunately many of us in the room Can also confirm by our own stories of longing and sadness and the places where our sexuality has been mishandled or where we've been sinned against. What we realize really quickly is that this is not just skimming the surface of physical desire and physical thirst but it participates in deeper levels and layers that the whole person is bound up in this experience and in fact it has a deep and profound spiritual reality that is participating. And so here we are with this initial statement that if Jesus is the one that is most committed to our satisfaction, what we're realizing at the front end is this, we are all thirsty and the question is what is the nature of the thirst and how are we going to manage these desires the second thing that's going to become clear as we go with jesus on this journey is not that we're all thirsty it's not merely that the second reality is this indulgence does not provide satisfaction what this text is going to expose is a profound truth that quite frankly this is the this is the place where the cultural narrative and what the Bible is going to posit part. They start going on very different directions. Because what the scriptures are going to say is that indulgence will not and cannot satisfy ultimately. And the, the way that this text explores this for us. I just want you to see the implications on this woman's story. Pulling out just a few, a few uh realities that are coursing through the story look at verse six and seven first off it says this that when jesus was wearied from his journey and was sitting beside the well it was about the sixth hour and the woman came out to draw water now it's been commented by it's been written on by many commentators that this is very unusual because the sixth hour is noon and women did not draw water at noon they would draw water in the early morning or in the evenings when it was cooler but to do this work in the height of the, of the day would, would be very unusual. It would cause a first century reader to be scratching their heads and going, what's going on here? And as best we can tell from the context is that she is avoiding the community of the other women from her town. The idea being if she's not going when all the women are going to be out there. She's going when she knows she will be alone. She is very alone in this text, or at least trying to be, and Jesus meets her in that space. And then he says to her, did you, did you see it in verse 13, that he says, I, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. He's exploring thirst, as we've said in this text. But what's beginning to be realized is this, that indulgence doesn't provide satisfaction. And you see that he's playing with all of these levels of thirst. They're talking about water, but they're also talking about her sexuality. They're also talking about worship. And what he's saying is this, that if you keep coming and drawing from this well, as soon as you are satisfied, you're going to need more. You're going to want more. Indulgence is not going to provide your satisfaction. And then ultimately, in the verse already noted, that when he, he says, well, go get your husband and and it is identified that she has had five husbands we realize that she has been coming back to this well time and time again and that the outcome is that she is alone out at the water she's ashamed avoiding her community and she is still dissatisfied still longing for satisfaction Jesus is beginning to explore the nature of thirst and what he is exposing for this woman and for all the readers that come after is this. All of your indulgence cannot satisfy your ultimate desire. Now we live in a sexualized moment. We live in a moment that tells us, we, we live with a cultural reality that has conflated sexuality with identity. Identity. And has defined our satisfaction and our love in terms of sexual expression. We live in a cultural moment that has, has reshaped our understandings of what does sexual satisfaction look like. And my question is this. Is it working? Is the indulgence of our sexuality providing satisfaction? Carl Truman in an excellent work called The Rise and the Triumph of the Modern Self deals with some of this. It's... it's it's not like real readable, <laughs> uh, but it's worth it if you put forward the effort. He's, I, I actually just finished it and he's coming out with like a shorter primer version. Maybe you'd enjoy that one better. Um, but I will say this, what he has done is he's trying to trace how have we arrived in this sexualized moment as a culture where we have defined identity and love and relationships in the ways that we have culturally. And what Truman traces is this reality that in some ways the question of who are you really has been answered in a lot of different ways throughout history. Like, how would you define your identity? And it's, it's a fairly and radically new thing that we would define identity in, in conjunction with our sexuality or our sexual fulfillment. And he says that in many ways, it starts with the psychologizing of the self. That with the advent of modern psychology, we begin to think of ourselves not so much in terms of our commitments to what's true or our commitments to community or the things that we are most, uh, that we most value underneath everything else. But, but psychology said, you are what you feel. And it was the psychologizing of self that started to cause people to go, well, yeah, I am what I feel primarily. And then he said, right on the heels of that comes Freud saying, and by the way, uh, psychology is radically sexualized. So the self is psychologized and then psychology is sexualized meaning that your psychology what you feel is actually most truly and deeply rooted with your primary sexual urges that started from the time you were a child perhaps when you had sexual urges even for a parent you see that freud started to say we are we are what we feel and what we feel is primarily sexual And then he said in the last step in our last generation, sex has been politicized. And so when the self is psychologized and psychology is sexualized and sex is politicized, now all of a sudden we're in a place where to say anything else about identity or sexuality has the potential of being dangerous or hateful, an attack on a person's core identity. And to that place, Truman is just asking the question, Are we we operating with accurate definitions, with a true understanding of who we are at our essence and how sexuality actually works? Is it true that we are a people that will only find satisfaction by eradicating all sexual boundaries so that we can be free and fulfilled truly? Truly. And and quite frankly, I just want us to be honest. Whichever path we're on, a cultural narrative path or laboring to let the scriptures define for us identity and sexuality and fulfillment and marriage, if whatever path we're on, we all would affirm this. We all affirm that there are some boundaries around sexuality. Everyone does. For instance, the boundary of consent, we would all affirm that that is a proper boundary around sexuality, or secondarily with a minor we would say that that's a it's a proper boundary not to be transgressed or with a family member that's a proper boundary not to be transgressed wherever we are in the way that we're wrestling with these definitions we would say there are some boundaries so the question is this what are the proper boundaries and who gets to discern where they're drawn how do we come to What are the set of boundaries that we're affirming for sexuality? And what I would posit, and what I believe the scriptures would posit, what I think Jesus would say to us today is this. We have eliminated too many boundaries. We have eliminated boundaries that were actually in place to protect and preserve something that is beautiful and good and precious. And that in so doing, we are putting ourselves in a dangerous place. We are doing violence to something precious. In her book, Dopamine Nation, Anna Lemke, uh writes about the nature of indulging our sexuality. Now, Anna Limke, let me get this right because she's got a very impressive title and I wanna give it all the weight that it deserves. She is the head of the Addictive Medicine Dual Diagnostic Clinic at Stanford. She's no slouch. You know, like she's sharp. She's been doing clinical work around addiction and around dopamine and how it affects the human brain. And she's she's been doing a lot of cutting-edge research on how drugs and alcohol and sexuality, the ways that they affect the brain in similar ways, and the way that when we give ourselves to pleasure, that it actually doesn't produce what we thought it would. Here are the conclusions of her scholarly work. She says, she says this, Our propensity to run from the things that generate pain rather than turning towards them and working through them is killing us. Our addiction, this isn't a direct quote, this is her summary. Uh, She says, our addiction to pleasure is killing us and this applies to drugs, alcohol, sex, and the like. And then these are her directly quoted conclusive takeaways. One, relentless pursuit of pleasure always leads to pain. What an interesting note the relentless pursuit of pleasure always leads to pain. Recovery begins with abstinence, she writes. Abstinence resets the brain's pathways and enables us to take joy and simple pleasures. She goes on to list several others. There's seven in total. The last is that radical honesty promotes awareness and enhances intimacy. In her work, what she is saying is this. We live in a time and a place that is erased, all of the boundaries and said your fullness and your satisfaction will be found in satisfying your appetite your very physical appetite as a sexual being. And she said, but what has come out of that has actually been devastating. The pursuit of pleasure for its own sake always produces pain. And she actually is inviting people to start engaging with abstinence, to actually start to step away from pleasure so that they can re-engage with the simple joys that are baked into the good gifts in the world. The truth is, our sexual practices writ large are wreaking havoc if we could just be honest the the current pornography usage and what it is creating in the world it is stirring up the demand that has caused a 30 billion dollar sex trafficking industry It's, it's something that is consistently described as private and there's you know, there's nobody being harmed about what you do in the privacy of your own room or when nobody's watching. But the reality is that, that Jesus' words and the boundaries that he draws around, hey, don't even go to these places in your mind, that if we were honoring Jesus' boundaries, little girls that are being ushered into sex trafficking all around the globe would be safe. They're not Because we've defined ourselves as our ultimate satisfaction is the exploration and the fulfillment and the freedom of whatever sexual urges that we have. And here's Jesus drawing very firm, clear, extreme boundaries in a certain sense saying, you need to be on guard even about what's going on in the secret places in your mind if we're going to honor humanity around us in the ways that are healthy. You see, he has drawn some very clear boundaries Defining sex as a gift of God for a husband and wife in the covenant of marriage. And inviting all those that are outside of that covenant to honor God with their sexuality, to even abstain, which incidentally, Dr. Limke has found, leads to greater realities of joy than indulgence does. You see, culture has given us working definitions of identity and satisfaction and love that right now, if, can we just zoom out for a second and just be honest? Now, I'm not making a one-to-one correlation, but I'm examining the cultural narrative and where we are as a culture right now. We are the wealthiest nation ever. We have more sexual freedom and expression. We are Giving ourselves more fully to anything that could cause dopamine receptors in our mind to fire, anything that could generate pleasure in our life, and it's not working. We are the loneliest, most depressed, most anxious people ever on the planet. Can we just pause for a second and admit it's not working? Like what we've been sold about how we'll be satisfied, what it looks like to indulge and to find your fulfillment. We are writ large indulging, and what it's doing is it's causing harm to others and it's robbing us of our freedom and our joy. And so it raises a final question Where can we go to experience the real thing? We're all thirsty. But indulgence does not provide satisfaction. Who is it that gets to draw the lines? Who is it it that gets to define what's going to lead to human flourishing? And I just, just before we plunge into this final point, I just want to, you think about the way that, that we've gone through this skeptics welcome series. If you weren't here with us at the start, we talked about why we can trust the scriptures. And I would invite you to go back and engage that, engage it with a skeptical mind and ask the hard questions, I believe that the scriptures are trustworthy and have stood the test of time and we tried to prove that that week. On Easter, we talked about the reality of the resurrection. I don't have enough faith to think Jesus stayed dead. Everything historically, the evidence points to the fact that he conquered death. He came back from death and spoke with authority. So my question is this, who in the scope of human history has clearer authority to draw lines for us. And if we come to him, what we realize is that what he is proclaiming is I can deliver the real thing, your true satisfaction. Let's see how he does it for this woman in verses 25 and following. It says that the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her jar, and it's interesting. She came out because she wanted to satisfy her thirst, and now she realizes she leaves her jar because she is ultimately satisfied. She, she runs into town, and she says to these people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And what you see is this ironic reality that this woman has been avoiding the community because of her sexual shame, but now she's running back to the community to say, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Now why? The very thing she didn't want to embrace was that everyone would find out who I am and what I've done, but now she's telling everybody, come and see, he told me. What's the difference? Do you know why the world is sex crazed? Because in the sexual act, It's the closest thing to the taste of the love of Jesus that we'll experience in this way, in this way. Someone is exposed and seen for all that they are. And the other person doesn't draw back in disgust or say, ooh, but they lean in and they embrace. Exposed and embraced. But the truth is, even in that physical act, there could be other things going on relationally or spiritually. That very person in the moment of embracing might be thinking about someone else. They might not even be present. They might not be actively loving you. They might be using you. They might be judging you. You don't know what's going on in their head and their heart, but the reality is this, that in Jesus, this woman is finally truly exposed and truly embraced. She has a series of lovers, but she has never been satisfied. And when Jesus says, I see you down to the bottom, I see the bottom of your soul and I don't reject you I say I've come to satisfy you truly Jesus delivers what we have been going to the the wells of our sexuality longing for He gives us the ultimate satisfaction And the the reality is that sex is a gift that is intended to be a taste pointing towards that This last summer my family and I went on a road trip to Big Sur Anybody been to Big Sur Maybe the most beautiful place on the planet. I th- I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and say it is. <laughs> now, I want you to imagine we drove out there, we get 1,500 miles into this road trip, we're 10 miles from Big Sur, and we see a sign, Highway 1, Big Sur this way, and we stop, and we pull over to the side of the road, we get out of the car and start taking pictures of ourselves with the sign, and then we pitch our tent right there on the side of the road under the sign and we just hang out there for a couple of days and every once in a while we feel the breeze coming up from the ocean we're like oh don't you love that ocean breeze and and then we come back and we show you the pictures of our vacation we went to big sur here's the sign it says 10 miles that way here's where we pitched our tent we hung out there we felt the breeze it was amazing and you would say please tell me you didn't stop there please tell me you didn't stop at the sign Like, please tell me you went and you stood on the shore and you saw the Pacific Ocean stretching out and you saw waves crashing in against the rocks with the spray going up and sea lions soaking up the sun out on the rocks and you were flooded with all the beauty in every direction. Please tell me you didn't pitch your tent at the sign. But friends, when we believe that sex is the core of our identity and it is what is going to satisfy us, It is like pitching our tent out at the sign and never tasting the reality. It is a good gift, but it's a gift that's directing us to the ultimate gift. And it's going, don't stop here. And quite frankly, it's a gift designed for marriage, but it doesn't mean that anybody that doesn't taste the gift has been robbed. Because listen, how does Jesus define the ultimate in love? He doesn't say husband and wife. Finding themselves sexually satisfied in one another. What he says is, no one has greater love than this, than a friend would give up his life for another. He describes it as sacrificial friendship love, as the pinnacle of human love. What Jesus is saying is, I've come to deliver life in its full. And he lived the perfect human life as a virgin, because you don't need sex to be satisfied. That is a lie. We have been sold a lie. It is a good gift but it's just a sign that's pointing us towards the ultimate reality and what Jesus is saying is would you come to me and find your heart's deepest satisfaction. You see in a moment like this I know that there's people in the room that might feel like this woman that saying I just want to avoid the community. Jeremiah is all passionate and I've got this background, these decisions, these things that I've done i just want to say to you friend no matter where you've been no matter where the shame nips at your heels jesus has gone to great lengths to express his satisfying love to you he lived the life we were supposed to live perfect sexual purity as well as purity in every other way and when he was bleeding and dying on the cross he called out i thirst Because he took our very thirst, not just physically, but on every level into his bones. Our longings and our desires, all of our unmet expectations. And he said, I will take all of the brokenness and the shame and the sin and I will take it into myself so that in your exposure, I can with resurrected power and beauty embrace you and help you find your home and your identity. Friends, Jesus is more committed to your satisfaction than anyone else ever run to him and allow him to draw the boundaries around your life and your sexuality and what you will find is that the lines have fallen for you in pleasant places let me pray for us Jesus we repent of being a sinful people forgive us. We live in confusing times trying to understand who we are and what it looks like to live a fulfilled life. We feel spun around so many times. I just pray that you would dig us ears to hear and that we would hear and trust your voice, the good shepherd that's leading us into good pastures. And I pray that you would beckon to people even now, speaking to them at the deepest places of their, of their hearts, that they might understand and experience their true satisfaction in you. We bless you and we thank you for what you've done on our behalf. It's in your precious name that we pray, amen.